Hello, it's Tuesday, December the 14th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming from, as ever, the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... We've got details of the world's longest ever train journey. It takes 21 days. Positive new job figures. The IMF gives the British economy a positive endorsement. Anne Sekoulis, who was driving the car which allegedly struck the teenager Harry Dunman on his motorcycle, a date's been set for her to appear in court in London via a video link. Pubs and restaurants are warning Christmas cancellations are going to cut their festive takings by 40%, but are even stricter conditions on the way in. But first, the Prime Minister set a target of a million vaccinations. He's called for an army of volunteers. I'm going to be talking to one. So Boris Johnson has set a hugely ambitious target of a million vaccinations a day, this is the booster jab, to combat the Omicron variant of COVID-19. To achieve this, he's called in the army, retirees and called for a volunteer army to play a role in delivering the jabs. Nicole Lampert is a freelance journalist and she is a volunteer and she joins me now. Nicole, uh, are you in the thick of it already? I am not because the vaccine centre where I volunteer at, they aren't actually open till tomorrow they right. have gone down they, at the start at the start of the kind of whole vaccine drive they were open every day a week 8 a.m to 8 p.m but over the summer things slowed down so much that they went to just weekends friday saturday and sunday but after the announcement on sunday they're now opening from wednesday okay and what what p- persuaded you nicole to um trained to become a volunteer vaccinator because you can't you can't just turn up and put injections in people's arms you do have to have training don't you i, I should just say that i'm not a vaccinator i'm just i'm right. a volunteer helping in the vaccine okay. center okay um, so, the, so the vaccinators they have special training and uh, it's several weeks of training and i have to say that probably most people that are doing the vaccines now aren't volunteers even the people that started off as volunteers um, are now being paid in general. And uh, a lot of the NHS staff that were doing it as volunteers are now also being paid because it's been a long year. So I'm there with other people helping things run smoothly. So there's a, quite a lot of admin at the NHS. So each time someone is vaccinated, it takes about two minutes to input all of their details on the system. You have to say everything from what the vaccine was, what batch number it was, who they are, you have to check about three different tick, about three different boxes to say that yes, they have agreed to having the vaccine. Then there are also people on reception who are greeting you, they're mainly volunteers. And then there are marshals just making sure that people aren't getting too close to each other, that people aren't standing in the right places. There, there's someone to uh, take everyone's temperature, there's someone keeping an eye in the waiting room because all of these boosters are either Pfizer or Moderna, and so people have to wait to make sure that they don't have an allergic reaction to them. And do you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I do. I do enjoy it. I think that's why I started doing it. I started doing mm. it because I'd, I'd actually written a piece about the Blitz Spirit. Yes. Um, and just around that time, um, just something popped up on a kind of local, local WhatsApp that they were looking for vaccine volunteers. So I put my name down and I could see that they were desperate and they remained pretty desperate. But at that time, there were a lot more people doing it because there were a lot of people on furlough. So although there were a lot more sessions, and as I said, um, they were happening every day from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., 
there were certain days that would be really busy. Whereas recently, it slowed down over the summer, and then recently with the whole booster take up, there's just been a, they've struggled to get volunteers to help because people are back at work. People like me have been doing it since February or even earlier, and and so they have kind of asked all of us to put the word out to try and get more people to help because it's it's not something that requires much training. It can be done, you know, you can do it. Then the yeah. sessions are now like yeah. five six hours, and it's very rewarding. And what, and what do you think, I mean, there's been queues all over the country and some people are saying the Prime Minister shouldn't have spoken in such dramatic terms on Sunday night because the infrastructure's not there. But I think he was right to speak in those terms because it's led to a huge upsurge in the number of people seeking the booster, which is that's what we need if we want to prevent us going into an even more uh, gruesome lockdown. Yeah, I can just... I can see that on social media that people are going into slight panic mode and mm. so I've written a tweet on there just saying, you know, don't let this become the new fuel crisis or the new toilet paper crisis. Yeah. That there are enough vaccines for everyone. We don't yeah. all have to get them today. No. As I said, the centre that I work at, they haven't, you know, they're not even opening till tomorrow um, because everything's just getting into gear. I think the problem... The problem with Boris's announcement is that everyone was like, okay, I'm going to get my vaccine, I'm going to get it tomorrow. And the infrastructure wasn't there because no one was given warning. And, you know, as we both know as journalists, if a letter had gone out to the NHS saying, please, you know, we're going to, we're going to push for more boosters, then people would still have gone into panic mode. So I would just say there, just, there are enough vaccines. You don't have to queue for three, four hours if you just wait a couple more days then more and more vaccine centres will be get, kind of reaching capacity and, and able to vaccinate everybody. And I presume, Nicole, probably a superfluous question, I guess you've had your booster jab. I have, yes. But that, I have yeah. to say that was an advantage of, of um, being a vaccine volunteer that I had my first vaccine in February along with the kind of 70-year-olds and the 80-year-olds. Yeah, well, why um, not? If you, you, des- you deserve to be rewarded. Well, um, it's, so, it's, they, uh, I mean, they, they class us as frontline healthcare workers. And, yes. you know, essentially, especially when you're dealing with, when you are, you know, you're getting close to people who are very vulnerable, it makes sense that you are safe to keep them safe. So, yeah, it, I, I, I get it. Well, I think you're doing yeah. a great job, Nicole, and you put me to shame because a couple of my mates are doing it as well, and um, they say they really they really enjoy it too. And um, you are part of a national operation. You are part of the Blitz spirit, Nicole. Exactly. It, you know, it, it felt, certainly felt like that at the start. Uh, I think it'll so, be back tomorrow when when you're when you're back there tomorrow when it reopens. I think you'll find that, that you're very much in the Blitz spirit because um, the the, up, the the upsurge is apparently huge all around the country, which I think is terrific. Yeah, it definitely is. No, it's good that people are coming in. Absolutely, absolutely. That's Nicole Lampert. She's a freelance journalist and she's been helping out. And what a great, great for doing it. Helping out in the vaccination centre in North London. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free and in full, along with all our other podcasts and video series. And don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. Pubs and restaurants are predicting that Christmas cancellations made following the introduction of Plan B measures to limit the spread of the new Omicron variant of COVID-19 in England alone will cut their festive takings by 40%. But I can tell you for a fact, at Westminster, the place is abuzz with talk that the government is in fact now considering Plan C, which could mean even more stringent measures could be imposed 
in the new year. Michael Stevenson is General Manager of the Best Western Lansdowne Hotel and joins me now. Uh, Mr Stevenson, the talk is, uh, it is just that talk, that pubs and restaurants could be shut completely uh, if the Omicron variant continues to accelerate. I think it's just devastatingly bad news for us. You know, we've suffered through 18 months of torrid trading. We finally get a summer where we almost feel like we're starting to make some inroads. We've had the battles with recruiting staff, which, you know, thankfully we've managed to to work our way through. And we've kind of now just built a really great team of people. Um, We've just restored customer confidence in using the business again and actually having customers coming and, and wanting to have a good time with us. And already now what we're seeing is, you know, bookings cancelling just on the rumour of this coming. Um, and people wanted to almost get ahead of it. We've, you know, our business levels are now less than 60% of where it was in 2019. You know, now it's having an impact on my staffing and, you know, and now an impact on their lives because we're having to cut shifts because parties and functions aren't taking place. If it then goes that we have to close down completely, it's just going to have a devastating impact on, on those people as well. You're in Eastbourne, which is um, a, a great tourist town. Uh, it's, uh, a lot of people, uh, if, is it fair to say, Mr. Stevenson, are maybe a bit older than other parts of the country? Yes. And you would, so you would assume the local population is going to be pretty much jabbed because they would have been the priority, older people. Yes. And the people that come to your hotel, are they locals who come for Christmas lunch or come for office parties? Or are you, do, do you in December have a lot of tourists coming in from outside of Eastbourne? So from a residential, the Christmas package, it's almost a 50-50 split. So we'll have people that come to us as tourists and want to to get away. You know, a lot of people we see come out of Surrey and out of London and they want to come away from the city, come to the beautiful coast and spend three or four days celebrating Christmas here. And then similarly, we have a lot of local families. And as you've rightly pointed out, there's a slightly elderly population. So it's quite nice sometimes for them not to have to worry about doing that at home and want to come somewhere where somebody can provide that service for them. Um, and actually, it's, it's a real lifeline for some people. And you know, if you're, we, we have a lot of individuals that come for Christmas, and that can be quite isolating at Christmas, and there's a lot that's going on. And actually, enjoy that being in an environment where there's other people around, um, so you can kind of get off that social environment that goes with it. What of um, uh, your own policy, Mr Stevenson? Do you require people to show... Uh, that they've been double jabbed or even had the booster jab before they're allowed to come into the, to the hotel? Do they have to wear masks? Do you have policies like that? So not for vaccinations. Um, and that was very much, uh, we didn't want to create confrontation for my staff on that. Isn't something that's been mandated. Um, I think if, you, if that comes from the government and says you have to do that, then absolutely we would enforce that. But when it's an optional thing, I just think that creates opportunities for confrontation from my staff that I was uncomfortable with. Um, all of our staff, though, are vaccinated. Um, we have some under 18s that are potentially not double vaccinated. Everybody that, that can have a vaccination and what they can have, they have had. Um, whilst working all the functions, we have um, masks in place for all the staff. We encourage all of our guests to wear masks in all of the public areas. We've, you know, the, the hand sanitising stations are still in place. We've kept some of our service restrictions that we put into place when we first reopened in May. So. You know, we have prescribed booking times for things like breakfast and, and we limit the number of people that will be in the restaurant at any one time. So we've kept all of those things in place. Um, 
the only one that we kind of maybe haven't looked at is the vaccination, the vaccination status, because I think that unless that's something that's mandated, that's not something I'm potentially comfortable having to try and enforce. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And what of um, financial support, Mr. Stevenson? You're already m- money's draining away f- from from you at a time when you should be um, really collecting the cash because it's the busiest time of the year. Are you hoping that if this continues, or if you, we do go into some form of Plan C, that there'll be some form of furlough scheme revived for you? Absolutely. We, it would be it'd be devastating without it. You know, as a business, we wouldn't be able to to get through that period without some sort of support. Or, you know, the furlough scheme was phenomenal. That allowed us to to retain the majority of the staff that we had within the hotel, and then reintegrating them back in when we could reopen, and actually enabled us to do it kind of at a slower pace. So as the business levels picked up, we were able to bring people back. Not having that type of scheme in place would be, would be devastating for the staff. And then similarly, you know, we did utilize some of the government schemes that were available during the first lockdown. If uh, this was going to be prolonged, we would need to do something like that, come back in again. Fascinating, isn't it? Well, um, I, I say it is just rumour, uh, Plan C, and um, I think there's going to be a major revolt. There's going to be a major revolt today by Tory MPs today on Plan B, Mr. Stevenson. So I'm not sure even if the Prime Minister wants to do it, he'd be able to get it through the Commons anyway. No, and I mean, but that in itself is actually a challenge because almost uncertainty is 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 a biggest problem. You know, we are seeing yeah. bookings cancelled because actually people yeah. don't know what's coming down the road, and no. and then think, well, actually. Do I get ahead of it and make alternative plans and do different things now? Because, you know, and frustratingly, when, you know, Boris says we're not going to have a lockdown, and I think everybody, the fear then is clearly there's a lockdown coming. Um, and that's having an impact. So what we, what, you know, what we want is some certainty. Actually, what we'd like is them to, to understand the challenges that we've already faced as an industry. Um, and I think actually, you know, I, I speak for all of my colleagues in the industry, we do a phenomenal job at, uh, looking after our customers, making sure our spaces are safe, making sure we have you know the hand sanitising points already there. Most of us have kept social. You know, we're doing a really good job at protecting our guests, and we feel we now need support from from the government to to allow us to have a season that enables us to keep our businesses operating. All right, that's Michael Stevenson. He's general manager of the Best Western Lansdowne Hotel in Eastbourne. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So there were reports this morning that Anne Sekoulis, the diplomat's wife who was driving the car which hit the British teenager Harry Dunn when he was on his motorcycle, has been ordered to appear in court via a video link in London. But Sekoulis's people in the United States and Virginia suggested that report wasn't true. She, of course, was charged with death by dangerous driving at the time of the accident, but thus far efforts to extradite from US soil, where she's said to be working as a CIA officer, have been resisted. Rad Seeger is a spokesman for the family of Harry Dunn. Rad, we've talked many times. You must have um, been bemused when you saw these reports because we understand now that the Crown Prosecution Service or the Department of Justice, they haven't got their ducks in a row to get her into court. I can assure you that they absolutely have their ducks in a row. You'll know as well as I do that the CPS do not come out and, and confirm things unless they have their ducks in a row. Right. What's going What's going on in Virginia, I, 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 I really can't comment on. I, do, I don't know what's going on. But I can confirm that just within the last few minutes, not only 
Um, do we know the date and the location of the hearing? Ah. It's now been confirmed that it's at 2 p.m. on the 18th of January, and that's come from um, the British authorities uh, at Northamptonshire Police. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm disregarding what's going on in Virginia. I think we, we, we are entitled to go by what the CPS have said. They've confirmed that to the family. They've confirmed that to the media. And um, what, what's going on in Virginia is, is certainly nothing to do with the family. And uh, unless we're told otherwise, we will be at Westminster Magistrates Court um, on the 18th at 2 p.m. So, because it was reports coming out from Sekoulis in Virginia that she had no contact and wouldn't be appearing in court. Um, Brad, what's your understanding? If she does not show up virtually for that court hearing, she's in contempt of court, she's already uh, in trouble uh, with, with the British law already, what happens then? I, I, I'm just not going to go there, Andrew, because I, I, I know for a fact that that hearing is going to take place. And I, right. I, 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 I've, been, I, I've been reassured, as the family have been directly, that that hearing is, is going to take place. So for us, I, I think if you look at the statement that, that Mrs. Jeffers has put out, it, what it actually says is no agreement has been reached yet. Um, so... Um, I, uh, I don't know whether it's just a matter of semantics or whether it's just about dotting the I's or crossing the T's. The statement certainly does not say it's not happening, so everybody pack their bags and go home. Um, all I can tell you is what we have been told by the CPS and what they've confirmed to you and colleagues in the media. So I, I'm just not going to speculate as to, as to whether she shows up or not. We will, we, will, we will be there in Westminster on that date and assume unless we hear otherwise, that, that um, justice is now going to take its course. So, now, we know that Sekoulis was charged with causing death by dangerous driving. She was charged by the Crown Prosecution Service. That was way back in December 2019. The extradition request submitted by the Home Office was rejected by the US State Department in January 2020. She is accused of killing Harry, uh, the teenage motorcyclist, in that road crash outside the US military base in Northamptonshire on August 27, 2019. For the family, Rad... They're getting ever closer now. How have they reacted? Can you give us any uh, description of how they've reacted to the fact there is now a date set in concrete for the court hearing? It was absolutely overwhelming emotionally um, last night when we when we learned the news. And you know, as you know, they're on their knees, suffering terribly, missing Harry. But um, the sense of relief um, just just overwhelmed them yesterday. And there were lots of tears, as you can imagine. But equal equally. You know, now now that we've got something to look forward to, I'm I'm hoping that they can now begin the process of adjusting to their to their new normal. Because of course, the U.S. government has has deprived them of that over all this time, whilst they've had to fight for justice. Just finally, Rad, we know your tentacles reach in all sorts of places. Has the White House been involved in any way behind the scenes in getting this court case, uh, in getting a date for this court case? Do you know? No, I, I don't believe so because you know um, the way these things work, it's 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 a matter for the Crown Prosecution Service um, to to deal directly with with Mrs. Sekula. So I haven't been involved in that process at all. What I can tell you and your listeners, Andrew, is that um, when when President Biden won the general election last year, he was the one who signaled that the path to justice had to be cleared, and it was. And so I think I think the, the the details of it have been worked out between the the CPS and Mrs. Sekoulis's lawyers, and 
Um, so no, I don't believe that the White House have been been, been involved okay. to that extent. Well, best of very luck, and we really we really hope this all happens, Rad, as you describe. So January the eighteenth, the very best of luck. That gives the family a little bit of cheer as they come up to Christmas, Rad. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Andrew. Always good to talk to you. That's Rad Seiger, who's spokesman for the family of Harry Dunn. Thanks for that. Now, it's time for our regular City Update with Ruth Sunderland, who's business editor at the Daily Mail. Now, Ruth, some really interesting figures on jobs, unemployment and employment. Absolutely. So we've had the new labour market statistics out today. Um, They're for October, so they are for for the period before the emergence of this rather worrying new variant, Omicron. But I have to say that the employment market has been amazingly robust throughout the pandemic, despite everything that's been thrown at it. So, you know, I'm not panicking about Omicron at all, and I, I would advise anybody else not to as well. So we've actually got an employment rate of 4.2% for the three months to the end of October. Um, now, that that's quite significant because that involves a period after furlough ended in September. So you did have a lot of people saying, well, when furlough comes off, it's going to be a disaster and it's all going to be terrible. Well, so far, you know, we, we haven't we haven't seen that actually happen. And, and my opinion is that this is a testament to the flexibility and efficiency of the UK labour market, which is a bit of a contrast with some of our partners on on the continent. You know, in Germany or in France, it's um, people employers are loath to hire because it's so difficult to fire anybody. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, not advocating anyone being fired, but sometimes, unfortunately, you, you you have to have a bit of flexibility. And the impact is that overall, employers are quite. I just find it easier to, to, to hire people and then they're not afraid to take people on. So overall, it can actually, I know it's a bit counterintuitive, it can benefit um, the job market. Now, a couple of things I'd say about this. Um, the first is that um, this employment this strong would, had it not been for Omicron, probably have been a trigger for an increase in interest rates when the Bank of England comes forward with its decision on Thursday of this week. Because we do have this rather dangerous new, dangerous looking new variant, um, we probably won't see a rise in interest rates, which will be a bit of a, of a sigh of relief for borrowers and the opposite for, for people who are, who are saving. Um, yeah. The other thing that I would draw attention to is we've, we've also today got um, a new IMF report. It's yes. an Article 4 consultation. This, this, is, this is the IMF's big look at the UK economy. They do it for all the countries that are, that are part of the participate in, in, in the fund. And it's actually very, very positive. So they're predicting that we're going to have 6.8% GDP growth this year, 5% next year. Now that's 6.8, that's better than, than any other developed economy. So that's really strong. And they've also said that we've made considerable strides, major, major strides, in putting in place a post-Brexit framework for trade and also for financial services. So, you know, that, that's actually all really positive stuff. So the thing from now on is we just really have to lock into those gains for the economy and not squander it all by going into a kind of over-the-top lockdown because of Omicron, which we really don't know yet whether we need to even do that at all. 
And it's interesting that this is coming from the IMF, Ruth, of course, because um, when Christine mm-hmm. Lagarde was head of the IMF, great friend of George Osborne, the then Chancellor's during the 2016 referendum, she, she was filled with apocalyptic warnings about how awful Brexit would be for the British economy. And this report suggesting au contraire. Uh, absolutely. So in, in 2016, I think the IMF um, said, well, you know, the impact of Brexit will range from pretty bad to very, very bad. Well, we haven't seen that at all, despite COVID and despite the effects of the of the pandemic. Now, of course, we still do need to nail down some things about Brexit. We still need to make sure we get advantageous trade relationships in place where there's a lot of work to be done yet on financial services and the city and that all that all does need to happen so I'm not being complacent about this and and you know it is still the case that um, Brexit could have could have an impact but you know this is a huge contrast from what the IMF were saying at the time of the referendum and um, it almost makes you worry about the, the strong forecast that they're giving now you know if they get things wrong yeah. um, you, you, you slightly gives you gives you pause for thought but you know this is this clearly the apocalyptic vision that they had for a post-Brexit UK just hasn't emerged and you know we do have the vaccine to thank for that I think you know if people all get out there and get their boosters and if we handle the Omicron challenge in a balanced and sane way, you know, and if if we assess the economic impact of restrictions and if we have an approach that's based on information, you know, hard information and personal responsibility, I think we'll be in a much better place in 2022 with the economy. Sounds good to me. That's Ruth Sunderland, who is, of course, business editor at the Daily Mail. Thanks for joining us. All aboard for the world's longest train journey. It begins in Portugal, it takes in Paris, Moscow and Beijing before arriving in Singapore. It takes around 21 days and costs around £1,000 or slightly less than a return for two between London and Manchester. Broadcaster journalist and rail expert Christian Walmart joins me now. Christian, I think this journey is uh, 11,654 miles, which breaks the previous record by about 1,000 miles. Is that right? Um, well, uh, I'll take a word for it because uh, it's, it's all a little bit hazy because after all, you're going through about 15 different countries. You're going yeah. on different sorts of tracks. Uh, you're taking a hell of a lot of different trains. Uh, God knows if you'd have to wait somewhere for two days for the next train and so on. But it's a bit of fun and it does kind of point to the way that, uh, you know, the railways are integrated. As you can hear, I'm at the station myself at the moment, but only in humble working. Well, very, very appropriate that you should be talking to us from a railway station. Um, 21 days, Christian. Do you think people will be up for that? That's quite a long time to spend on a train. Um, I think that only a few uh, train spotters would. I myself have gone between uh, Vladivostok and uh, Moscow, and that's six and a half days. And even that, we had to get off a couple of times because uh, we were going to get cabin fever, to say the least. So um, I, I somewhat think that slogging through 21 days of rail travel would um, uh, tax all but the most keen local spotters. But I'm sure there will be people ready to uh, do this. Um, and uh, you know, some of it is exciting. I mean, I understand that the newest bit is the bit from Laos to uh, the uh, chi- from the Chinese border, 
um, and that's a high-speed train through Laos, and that, that will be very exciting. And are, are you going to do the whole thing yourself? <laughs> I'm a busy man. I've got books to write and Daily Mail Radio to speak to, so um, yeah. I somewhat suspect that uh, um, I won't be doing it until I retire. Right, right. It's not a bad price, is it, £1,000? Do you get meals thrown in for that? I, I, I doubt it, and I, I don't know where oh. you got that price from, but... Um, I do somewhat suspect it will cost rather more because uh, there's no, it's not like airlines where you can, you know, they code share and you can buy uh, something that takes you kind of on three or four flights all for the same price. The railways don't operate like that. I mean, you try and book uh, just a journey, say, to Moscow from uh, St. Pancras and you'll find you have to pay USR, you'll have to pay the Belgian railways, you'll have to pay the French railways. Yeah, and well. right. You know, it's, it's, uh, um, I think it's a bit wishful thinking to say this will cost just a thousand pounds. Um, I suspect you'll be forking out large amounts of money to all sorts of bizarre train companies in, you know, Singapore, Laos, uh, Vietnam, China, and wherever. Exactly. Just, just finally, Christian, you've, tra- you've travelled on trains all around the world. Where is the best train com- Where is the best train lines in the world, and There's where is no the wo- and where are the worst? In my mind, what my favourite one is. Uh, is uh, the, the Glacier Railway that goes, uh, uh, Glacier Express that goes up to St. Moritz from uh, uh, Italy and then uh, uh, down to Coeur in, in Switzerland. And that is the most beautiful railway I've ever travelled on, whether it's in summer or winter. It is just the most mm. fantastic ride. And the, the worst, um, I think there's some uh, branch lines in the UK that... Uh, could certainly do with some uh, remedying. I was in Stranraer the other day, and that must be the saddest station in the world. Oh. <laughs> We're going to get a complaint now from the Stranraer train. I'm sure you'll get some Rail Appreciation Society, yes. But that's fascinating. That is uh, Christian Wilmar. He's a broadcaster, journalist and rail expert talking about the world's longest train journey, 11,654 miles, and perhaps it is going to cost a bit more than £1,000 after all. So that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, you can download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.